listening to the Stoic Solutions Podcast, practical wisdom for everyday life inspired by the ancient tradition of Stoic philosophy from Greece and Rome. I'm your host, Justin Vakula. Visit my website at stoicsolutionspodcast.com. For today's episode, I recorded with author Zachary Elwood about his new book, Diffusing American Anger, a guide to understanding our fellow citizens and reducing us-versus-them polarization. The book examines the roots of our anger, showing that many reasons for our anger are based on distorted views. Find Zachary Elwood's book on Amazon and visit his website, American-Anger.com, for more information. Before today's conversation, a quick housekeeping note. I'm using a new microphone for the entire episode, which should improve overall quality. Please leave feedback in the comments about your thoughts concerning the audio. Now, on with today's episode. All right, Zach Elwood, thank you for joining me for today's show. Hey, Justin, thanks for having me on. All right, I've been following you for quite a while in the poker scene. Many listeners might also know about some of your poker books, but now you're talking about a different topic. So can you talk to listeners about your recent efforts outside of poker? How I got into the, uh, you know, it started with my poker books. I used to play poker for a living. I wrote some poker tells, poker behavior focused books. And then I wanted to, I was thinking about what I could do to kind of do something a little bit more mainstream. And so I decided to do a psychology and behavior podcast. And then once I started that up, you know, that, that, that was very much behavior focused, but then I started getting really interested in, uh, you know, when Trump got elected, I started thinking more about the political space and examining the anger and the polarization dynamics and got interested in that. And I think they get really kicked off when I interviewed Jennifer Lynn McCoy, who's a polarization and democracy expert. And she kind of opened my eyes and doing the research for that opened my eyes to like, there's the, you know, there's all this research about polarization and, and the psychology behind it and how it plays out in all these different countries, regardless of issues and such. So that's kind of like what opened the door. And then I got really interested in it and interviewed a bunch of people, uh, academics and, and, uh, you know, on social media and polarization, these kinds of topics. Um, and that, so that's what led to to me being thinking it was the you know the biggest problem we face as as humans not just in America but just as a a problem for humanity and uh, so that's what that's what led to me interviewing a lot of people and what led to me deciding to write my diffusing American anger book and try to summarize the the, the things I've learned in that process. And you mentioned your podcast for listeners. Feel free to plug your podcast, the name of it, how people can find it. Oh yeah, it's people who read people. And that was, a, you know, based on the reading people behavior aspect of it. And it's at behavior-podcast.com. And thanks for letting me plug it. <laughs> yeah, very good. And you, I think before me, you hadn't encountered Stoic philosophy. But we say 2,000 years ago, many philosophers were writing about this topic of anger, how destructive anger can be. You listened to my discussion with Ward Farnsworth about Stoicism and some other authors as well have been on my show. Yeah, and I and I, I was you know I'm kind of like vaguely aware of Stoicism as an as an ancient uh, uh, you know an ancient school of thought, but I hadn't heard much about it recently. You know, and and listening to your show and looking into um, you know other people talking about Stoicism recently, I realized you know it's it's still a thing and a, and still a uh, a school of thought, and you know and it makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I kind of see it as tying into some other schools of thought. You know, like um, the, the Buddhism thing of like removing ourselves from our emotions and to, to reach more uh, contentment and wisdom kind of thing. But um, yeah, it, it very much uh, speaks to me. Yes, the Stoics are talking about having a rational view, recognizing our emotions, being mindful of them and trying to reduce the negative emotions. But if we we're to have the negative emotions, which are probably inevitable, we're hopefully to realize that and not act out of impulse act out of anger and engage in self-destructive behaviors or behaviors destructive to others. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Some elements within stoicism. And I, I think you find agreement with the philosophers when you write in your book, that anger clouds judgment. I mean, one of the things I focus on in diffusing American anger and a little bit in the podcast too, is I, I think people don't have a, you know, we tend to think of like anger as like something off to the side, you know, we're like angry about the issues that bother us. And we tend to not think that we tend to think of see the anger and the emotions as something separate that arises from it. But I think, you know, research and, and thinking about it a bit will show you that the uh, 
the beliefs, our beliefs can actually be shifted by the emotions, right? So the emotions are like a key part of how these things play out. You know, for example, one study that really stood out to me was a um, this study by uh, James Druckmann and his colleagues that showed how more the more us versus them animosity people had pre-COVID was tied to more extreme beliefs, you know, during COVID, basically like believing that, you know, you shouldn't do anything at all for COVID or you should take really extreme, you know, precautions for COVID. So just seeing how the, the animosity was tied, you know, very much linked to the uh, predictive of the later extremity of views, you know, and, and there's a few dots on how that happens, but basically, you know, we, we, we can see how when we're, very angry, like say we think someone else is evil and we, you know, we don't want to be like them. And we, and when they take a stance on something, we can very much have a, an instinct to, to reach for the opposite stance because we don't want to be associated with, you know, people we think are, are evil and horrible and such. And so these kinds of, this kind of contempt and animosity can really shift our views, make them more extreme and also just make us, because the, because it moralizes these issues more in a way that they wouldn't be when we're less angry, the more moralization of them makes us less willing to compromise and such and makes us view, you know, the opposite stances as, as being akin to, you know, immoral, horrible stances and such. So I think seeing how, yeah, the, the emotion clouding our judgment, as you put it, is, is very much a big part of um, solving the polarization problem of, of seeing it, you know, seeing the nature of the, of the dynamics as they truly are. Yeah. Yeah. You take a lot of examples through your book, mostly in politics as people from far left, far right will have very similar responses to things. The end of democracy. This is the last election. This is the most important election of our lifetime. Like a lot of these statements that are really over the top in many cases, just casting people we don't like as the worst people ever affiliated with these terrible groups when mm -hmm. maybe that's not the case, or it's just the polarized individuals, but not everyone in that same side or camp, so to say. Yeah, the the continual catastrophizing on both sides that you see so much of, you know, I mean, one example on the liberal side is, you know, before the last midterm elections, after, you know, Trump had, uh, you know, denied the election results and was drumming up that stuff. You know, there, there was a sense on the left that like, oh, that this is what everybody, all the conservatives are going to do. And the midterm elections are just going to be everybody denying the elections. And, you know, that didn't happen. And things mostly, you know, with a few exceptions passed pretty, uh, pretty well, you know, not very, very minimal problems there. Uh, but and that's just an example. It's like you, you can believe that there are bad things happening, but it's the catastrophizing that uh, can be really irresponsible in the sense that those things create more catastrophizing on the other side, right? Because when you, you know, when you say the sky is falling, then the other side, and you, and you say the sky is falling because of the other side, that really ramps up the other side's emotions and et cetera, et cetera, kind of creates this like self-fulfilling prophecy aspect. So um, yeah, one episode of my podcast was about uh, an interview with Thomas Zaitsov, who writes about, you know, why it's bad to take these very confident, uh, very pessimistic statements, you know, like some people will be like, a civil war is coming, you know, these kinds of statements <laughs> on, on both, si on both yeah, sides. Yeah, yeah, Tim, Tim so, Pohl's been talking about that for a while. <laughs> yeah, I mean, people on both sides will say, you know, it's, right, there's there's this guy in Canada who wrote, who wrote it, he's like a literary guy, and he, literary author, and he wrote a book about, like, the coming civil war of America, you know, it's like, these things are bad to do without, you know, the, the people that are, are unlikely to do that are the people that know the most about these kinds of dynamics and actually study them and see how polarization plays out in other countries and study history and such. It's like there are many, you know, states that don't involve like a full scale civil war, many states of like dysfunction and, and, and conflict that, you know, are, are we're much more likely to be in. But this is just to say, like, the more we catastrophize things, the worse we can make things because it just ramps up everybody's emotions. And to get an accurate 
portrayal, I think is very important when discussing these issues. Some on the left will cast some on the right is you hate poor people. You want to see people die in the streets. You think homelessness is not a problem, like um, st statements like that. And then on the right, sometimes you'll hear like, oh, well, you just you want to end babies. And, you know, we get some of this like blood drinking stuff, the QAnon we saw. So some of it got uh, really out of line. So we're seeing a lot of extreme stances on, on both sides of the aisle rather than trying to be more charitable towards the arguments for the people that won't have those extreme positions because indeed the extreme individuals are out there but is that really the the common folk i i think not and i get into that in my book because i try to tackle actual the actual issues and the actual kind of distorted stances we the views we have of each other yeah the and i have a section on the the economics and like you know the socialism capitalism thing and people seeing things and kind of a binary there too you know when like as, as with so many things, there's there's so much nuance and most people are not like, you know, full scale capitalism only or full scale socialism only or whatever. So people tend to boil the, the polarization, the animosity makes people perceive things in this kind of like binary, like yes or no kind of way. Uh, and in and, and, and like what you were saying, it's like finding the most extreme and high anger people on the other side and kind of basing your view of the whole other side based on that, which is, you know, in psychology, they call that the outgroup homogeneity effect where you kind of tend to uh, stereotype the entire other side and you stereotype them based on, you know, the worst people you see on the other side, the people that represent the threat or the immorality of the other side. And you kind of extrapolate to the, to the whole other side, which leads to, you know, people talking in more, insulting and contemptuous ways which ramps up the anger on the other side etc cetera, etc cetera. so it's all these feedback mechanisms basically you're encouraging people to work through ideas that might trigger anger if they want to reduce anger when it comes to these dynamics we can say that the the issues themselves are often not as important as we think they are uh that's not to say the issues are not important uh because clearly they can be important objectively or just to, to specific people, but the emotions, uh, like I was saying, the emotions play such a big role, the, the us versus them emotions. In order to make headway on this problem, I think it's important to actually go through the issues because the issues are what make us angry. And I think that's kind of what I did differently with my book that I just didn't see many people doing. I felt like with the polarization stuff, a lot of people, especially academics, would kind of avoid getting their hands dirty a bit like they wouldn't want to delve into the specific tough contentious contentious issues that you know are actually causing us to be so angry and that was what i wanted to do with my book was actually get my hands dirty a little bit you know at the risk of people on both sides getting angry at me but i wanted to show attempt <laughs> attempt to show you know there can be more generous interpretations of the people on the other side even if we very much disagree with them so my attempt was to not say somebody's right or somebody's wrong, but merely to show, hey, there's many ways to view our divides and to view the other side. And if you can start to see how the other side sees things, then maybe you can lower your your anger a bit, and, and, and which I think is necessary if we're going to you know, solve these problems. We need more people to examine the kind of distorted views they have of, of the people on the other side. Yeah, it's a wonder that some people misrepresent very often they don't even make a strong argument against their position or understand the arguments against their position so that's one thing that could be an effective tactic is like well can you reframe something that the other person is saying or can you give reasons why they have the position other than oh they're evil they want to destroy america whatever the case might be but unfortunately we don't see that too often the very dynamics of polarization make people un unwilling to do that. You know, when you're when you're full of anger and you are very scared of the other side and, and actually perceive a lot of threats, the last thing you want to do is like, hey, let me sit down and really figure out what these guys are about, right? Uh, so it's kind of fundamentally, you know, the, the why polarization is such a ubiquitous phenomenon, why it often, you know, enters these extreme feedback loops of just ramping up more and more you know it's kind of like our social instincts i think are just fundamentally unsuited and, and fundamentally uh you know amplify the, this very problem right it's like our instincts to when we're when we're under threat and angry our instincts to you know not be empathetic to the other side which is a you know could could be a 
a good um, instinct in some cases. We know when, if when you're in self-defense mode, but the these things uh, directly lead our social instincts directly lead to amplifying polarization. You know, another example is like when we're having all this us versus them animosity. We fundamentally do not want to question people on our side, and, and we don't want to criticize them, even though we may very much think that they're doing things wrong. But our, our our social instincts are to say, "Oh, we're under threat. We can't criticize our side because that might help the other side." It, when in reality, in my opinion, and the case I make in the book is that it's very important to criticize your side, and you do that to help everyone, including your side, and 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 to prevent. Uh, you know, extreme and high animosity people from kind of taking over your side. And, and, and that's actually part of the, you know, working against our own social instincts is part of how we solve these problems. But that's why they're so hard to solve is because our social instincts just lead us down the path of more and more polarization. And the enemy of my enemy isn't always my friend either. Like you see some people on the right who are very anti-social justice, anti-woke stuff, but they're also advocating for things like pushing people off of buildings who happen to have a certain sexual orientation. <laughs> so like, okay, well, I'm not going to put my lot in with them. I'm not going to put my lot in with people who are saying we should have divine right of kings or we should have um, another holy conflict. Um, this was our, our buddy uh, Nick Fuentes, for instance, who is uh, repeating many of these talking points. So as someone who might be a little bit more leaning toward the right or libertarian circles, I can say, hey, I can call out extremists that you might think are on my side. I'm not putting my lot in with people like that. Yeah, and there was even, wasn't there someone pretty uh, reputable, like who wrote a piece pretty recently that got a lot of attention where it was like, liberals are so bad we need to join up you know with the religious right basically it was like written by somebody who was not themselves yeah you know but they were they're kind of like you were saying they're making the case like you know the the threat that we sense is so is so scary that we need to we need to the, the religious people are the only people that can fight this huge threat we see you know which is kind of the instinct that happens on both sides you know when when you view the other side as such a horrible thing you're willing to put up with you know things you don't agree with on your side to you know to to make these kind of uh, strange bedfellows kind of cases yeah yeah like people can be concerned about environmental issues or climate for instance but they're not going to necessarily put their lot in with people who are chaining themselves to buildings or vandalizing paintings right? It's, mm -hmm. you don't have to take that perspective. It's like, well, we don't have to be that extreme. We could take more effective methods to reach our goals. Some, sometimes people would be so polarized thinking like, oh, well, we should be able to do anything because the other side is so bad. So right. what's some vandalism? What's some theft, right? They'll, they'll just try to excuse that behavior away. Yeah. I think that's an important point that's under examined is, is the fact that the dynamic where, you know, when you see the other side as such a scary threat, as so horrible, you you really, in a, in a very real sense, are kind of, you, you don't really care about the things that are bad on your side, like even, even if you know that they're bad, because in comparison, they just seem so inconsequential, you know, so I, I think, you know, one, one example that comes to mind there is, you know, uh, people will say, liberals will say, like the Tommy Tuberville thing, where like stuff he said, uh, I don't know if you followed his stuff, that stuff at all, but he said some like pretty offensive things like to me that were pretty clearly racist where he was like uh, saying like they want they want to give money. Reparations is about giving money to the people who do the crimes. It was just very, very, uh, you know, basically saying black people are the people that do the crime. And uh, it just but but I think and to a lot of liberals, they will see things like that and they will say, well, clearly Trump voters republicans are okay with this stuff right but i think it's much more the case that when you feel that you're at war you don't really care like what a few people on your side are doing you know it's like uh you, you see your side as like very fractured and very complex and like a f the actions of a few people on your side don't really count that much to you and you're very much focused on the threats you see from the other side and that helps explain you know why why for example like you know liberals seem to be shock that there can be like black and racial minority Trump voters or whatever it is, you know, and they, and, and that doesn't make sense to them. But I think 
you know, it, it, it makes more sense when you think like the, the nature of these conflicts are such that you're both both people on both sides are just focused on the things they see on the other side. You know, when it's kind of like being in at the battlefield and somebody telling you like, hey, one of your other soldiers or generals did something bad over here. And you're kind of like, I, I don't really care. I'm kind of in the middle of a war here, you know, uh, you know, so I, I think people but but I think people tend to, you know, they, they will judge, they will build up those grievances. They're like, look at all the horrible things on the other side that these people are okay with, right? But we're just, people are just focused on the things on the other side that they hate. And a lot of this, I think, can be self-destructive as well. As you write in your book here, once engaged in a conflict, the more time we spend fighting with others, the more insults we hurl at others and receive back at us, the more destabilizing this can be for us. I think these things are self-destructive and, and changes in ways that are not obvious. And I think, especially with social media, making it so easy to have these fights all the time and, and like really horrible fights and, you know, because we're online and people are at their rudest, you know, at their worst behavior. And I think, uh, I think time will tell uh, if we, you know, if we study it more, I think we'll look back and, It'll the way people act in a lot of these cases will make more sense to us. Like I think of like some some of these people that just kind of like descended into viewing themselves in a us versus them, good versus evil war. You know where where everything is about the battle. I think a lot of it comes down to how fighting with people online uh, make us feel. You know that we 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 kind of descend into this. You know because I think it's an unnatural thing. For example, you know like it's kind of a modern thing to be surrounded by people insulting you, right? Like that wouldn't really happen even in, in major conflicts in the past, right? You like, you wouldn't, you wouldn't like stumble into like the enemy camp or enemy uh, region and they'd all insult you for a while. Right. Uh, so it's kind of a, uh, a kind of a modern thing, uh, a kind of a new thing. I, I think it's not surprising that it can be kind of destabilizing to, like go online every day and just be like encountering people saying horrible things to you all the time. I think that does something to you. Yeah, you get some language on the right that everyone on the left is a groomer. You get some language on the left that everyone on the right is a deplorable. So you, you get a lot of this um, over the yeah, yeah, that's right. White Supreme Pizza, of course. Yeah, it was a it was a curious case a few months ago where some woman, Mandisa Thomas, who was with the organization American Human Association, she was accused of upholding white supreme pizza culture. I'm saying these words to be created for YouTube and the censors. She was accused of upholding white supreme pizza. And then a few months later, she was accusing other people of doing the same thing. And she learned nothing from mm. the bogus claims that were made against her. But then she goes around calling other people all of this flowery language and accusing other people of this, like making claims so bizarre as appeals to academic scholarship can be upholding uh, white Supreme pizza. So it's like such unreasonable positions that, that people are taking after being accused of these same things. Yeah. I think it's just fundamentally, I think, I think these dynamics, even apart from like the online stuff I mentioned, I think that the, the dynamics are just kind of fundamentally destabilizing, right? It's like, when you start viewing, you know, half the country as as evil or, or whatever, and, and you start losing your sense of, you know, because I, I think it really does have an impact in the sense of like, it's kind of hard to start viewing half of the country as horrible without weakening your own sense of humanity, which includes you yourself, right? It's like you are a human. And when you're when your view of humanity becomes so pessimistic, that plays out in, in ways that affect you too, right? Because it's like you become more pessimistic, more skeptical. You, you don't want to talk to people as much. You become less social. You become more antisocial, uh, which, you know, those things have impacts on your life. You know, they, they just these things just make us miserable in ways that I think are, are not obvious, right? And then, like, when we become more miserable, we're more likely to behave in more antisocial ways and say worse things. So it's like, you know, more of this feedback cycle aspect of just like hurting our humanity and uh, making us worse people, basically. Yeah, some people get the idea that there's no persuading the quote unquote other side. And the only way to react is by ridicule, satire. But I, I don't think that's a true thing either. Some people just give up. They get quite black pilled about it. Oh, there, there could be no persuading people. Mm -hmm. The people are so gone. The people are so extreme. Yeah, I think that's a that is a unfortunate aspect of it it's like and it's strange too because it's like 
I, I think it comes down to not being able to understand what drives the other side. Like, and, and that's what I'm about is, is trying to make that a little bit more understandable, you know, because I think when you can't understand how the other side can even, you know, how, how can the other side vote for Trump? How can that even be possible? Right. Without, you know, horrible motives or horrible beliefs. But, uh, and, and when you believe that you just start having, you know, all, all your view of everything, starts becoming more and more pessimistic. You, you don't see them as being reasonable people that might actually be able to be persuaded. So you speak in more rough ways and you give up on persuasion. And when you give up on dialogue, you know, basically the, the only thing left is, is war. You know, if you don't, if you don't believe in resolving conflicts with, uh, with words and, and compromise, then there's not really anything left except a battle. Right. And I think, that's what you know. That's what polarization does to us. It, it fundamentally makes us, you know, n not willing to to even engage in, in entertaining what the other side believes or trying to persuade them. And, and trying to persuade people is important. When you give when you give up on trying to persuade people, you've yeah, you've basically just entered, you know, the the battle mindset. Yeah, we probably won't be able to shift people like Fuentes, for instance, especially not overnight, but it is a white pill that many people who were associated with him in his camp, they were considered generals in his camp, right? They, they would even use that language. They've defected and they've said like, okay, it got too extreme. At first, it seemed like it was just some funny stuff and it was just mocking. But, you know, it got it got too much over time and I backed away and he, it was like a cult. They were even saying that even when they said, Hey, Nick, I want to leave, I'm moving out, or I'm just quitting the movement that Nick would pursue them. Nick would just dog them on his live stream and show day by day. And then the fans were attacking them online. So it became an interesting dynamic, but yes, uh, someone so extreme like that people have defected. So there is a chance that people do change their positions, especially after some quite substantial moments had happened. Yeah, I think that relates to the the catastrophizing aspect. It's like we tend to think the the horrible things we see on the you know the quote other side will just continue unabated, you know. But I think the reality is that the you know as society often does, things take corrections and such. It's like if you're a conservative scared about you know X Y Z dynamics on the left, like the more extreme things, like in you know, uh, the cancel culture things or, um, you know, pe people being violent at colleges. It's like those things can clearly, you know, undergo corrections. You know, all it takes is people getting sick of some of that behavior, which we've seen, you know, uh, many people kind of get sick of the more extreme stuff and, and push back against it. And, and the same on the right, too, you know, the, with the election denial stuff, for example, it's like the the, the midterms were, were a bit more... Uh, you know, we're, we're pretty, we're pretty normal. Uh, that's not to say, you know, there aren't th valid things to worry about there, but it's just to say when we catastrophize things and act like the other side can't be, you know, can't, can't reach some correction of the, of the problems we see when we act like the, the problems we see will just keep getting worse and worse and create some dystopia future. You know, I think that, that, that's what amplifies the divides is the, is this kind of cat catastrophizing and as opposed to seeing like, Hey, it's kind of natural that, people are behaving in extreme ways because we are so polarized and that's kind of like the fundamental outcome of these things. And we should try to take a longer term view and realize like part of getting healthier and part of reaching a more, you know, stable and, and, and normal future, uh, no matter what you believe is, uh, not overreacting to these things and trying your best to form persuasive and, and civil arguments because, you know, seeing that the alternative of, of treating people horribly just makes things worse and actually exacerbates the, the very things that are angering you. In the news, we're recording in late July here. There's a lot of controversy surrounding Jason Aldean. I sent you a link before the show about that. The Tennessee NAACP is blaming Jason Aldean for the rise of the certain clan with the Triple K, um, the Men in Hoods, let's say. They're blaming him for that as like, we have this song and we're just going to try to find whatever messages we can just post him as the worst person ever that the triple K is coming back because of Jason Aldean. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe there might be some local groups and some people who are using that as an opportunity to promote their propaganda and hatred, but is Aldean really motivated to do that? Is he really responsible for that? Should he be 
scourged and taken off record labels and whatever else people are advocating for. Yeah, and I, and I do want to throw in here. Thanks. I do want to thank you for sending me, um, you know, stuff on you. You've sent me some great examples of polarized behaviors on the right and the left over the years. So I, uh, I just yeah. want to throw in a thank you for that. Yeah, but the the yeah the Aldine thing. Uh, I, I think so many of these things are, you know, it's the catastrophizing, the worst case framing of, of people, you know, on the other side that represent, you know, as we see them, our divides, you know, and I think, um, yeah, I think that's, that's just another case. I mean, there's, there's, as with so many of these things, there's more generous interpretations of these things, even if you, you know, even if you think, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, you can have a spectrum of belief and believing like the very worst case framings of things is, is what too many of us do. I mean, for example, I mean, I, you know, I don't know if you remember that song, a country boy can survive. I mean, there people have been talking in, in that song, uh, which was like Hank Williams sec two or three. I don't remember, but, uh, he, he was, um, you know, there's a line about like, you know, my friend got stabbed in, in the city and I'd like to get some revenge on that dude. You know, the country, oh. country music has always had like, anti, <laughs> you know, kind of like, fuck the city kind of mentality like i don't like the yeah. violence in your city and the disrespect in your city and uh i mean uh, yeah i mean i can i can think of other country songs and al dean's was just like the the, the the more extreme focus on that but it's like there's nothing in that i found nothing in that that was clearly racist and i think with as with so many of these things it's taking the worst case interpretations it's, it's like mind reading you know when it comes to uh some of this stuff is can be seen as psychologically unhealthy because it involves so much mind reading and the worst, you know, the worst case interpretation of mind reading where it's like, I know what you were thinking, even though it wasn't clearly obvious. And I know it was malicious <laughs> motivations that you have, even though I can't objectively prove that. Right. I, I think a lot of these things come down to that where it's like, we take, we just take the worst case interpretations and we run with that because we either, you know, I, I think a lot of people, genuinely believe these things and i think that's hard for people to understand because and i think that's another way these things get accentuated and amplified is like when we see somebody on the other side behaving in ways that we think are unreasonable and kind of you know uh insulting to our group and 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 uh very unreasonable and too pessimistic it's like we think that they're doing it out of a you know like a manipulative or deceptive way but i think it's missing the the point that that's how polarization makes many of us think, right? It's like, it just kind of creates these filters for us where we, we're always filtering for the worst case view of, of what is happening in the world. And, and that I think helps explain a lot of this behavior because it's not like, sure, there, there are some people that do these things purposely, but I think it's much more, you know, much more common that people actually have the instinct to make these like worst case filters and if we can see that a little bit more and see that that's naturally what polarization does to us it also helps us be a little bit more forgiving and seeing like hey this is something that's affecting so many people and it's kind of like what so many humans and countries have gone through it's just such a human dynamic of like creating all of this worst case filtering and I think that helps, you know, helps us forgive even people that we think are being very unreasonable and contributing to our divides and such, and helps us try to form more persuasive arguments to those people and say, hey, you know, can you, can you see how you're not helping and here's why and, and try to help them see that the, the, the dynamics and, and such. Yeah, a lot of anger, especially online, where it's just easier to respond and it's easier for people to just uh, mouth off in many ways. One, one person I really used to like back in his college lecture day, particularly was Jordan Peterson. Mm -hmm. I authored a chapter talking about parallels of Jordan Peterson's ideas in Stoic philosophy. But over time, I've seen him take a lot of extreme positions. Most notably, I mentioned in a previous episode that he was attacking unmarried people and people <laughs> who don't want to have children as being selfish and demon possessed and all this other over the top language and many have chatted with him and say Jordan there are many reasonable reasons people don't want to have kids or be married and particularly men men are talking about divorce courts they're talking about unequal outcomes in custody they're talking about the possibility of false allegations people are weighing the risks and saying hey I just don't want to be part of this it's just not what I want to do maybe I can help humanity in some other way 
it's not just going to be, oh, I, I want to just play video games all day and watch <laughs> movies or whatever. Some people are out there doing other things, not necessarily selfish, as he's using that as a, a bad word. Yeah, I would include Peterson in that group of people I see as just, you know, having descended into this us versus them mentality and, and getting back to the idea that these things, that those emotions and those fears and, and, and such really distort our perceptions, right? Because I think he's somebody similar to what we were talking about before, where he he basically is more likely to side with questionable ideas uh, that, that are merely, you know, pushing back against the, the people that he hates, which is, you know, the left ideas. So he's, you know, more likely to now align with these various beliefs that are that are pushing back against the left, even though like a few years ago, as you say, he would not have had those beliefs. Right. And I, I think mm -hmm. that's an example of how these things distort us. And, and I'll be, you know, I'll, I'll take a personal example for me. I mean, one of the reasons I really, I, I literally don't look at my Twitter replies. Like I have tens of thousands of unread messages probably from the last two plus years. Wow. Like I, I only check like specific tweets that I left recently or like specific replies or if I want to follow it. But I, I and one of the reasons I, I don't do that is because I feel like the, it's so mentally taxing and and stressful to like read people hating you all the time that I just kind of bowed out of it. And also it's a time suck too. I think people just get waste a lot of time on that stuff. But like one of the reasons is that I think it's just so uh, mentally bad to like, you know, and I'm someone who goes in to high traffic, you know, high uh, contentious uh, tweet threads and such and, and leaves, you know, kind of depolarizing messages and, and criticisms and such. And so I get a lot of hate from people on both sides and, and I just, I'd rather not read most of those messages because they, you know, it's just not productive. And I think it's, it, it is mentally, it, it does, it does fuck you up in a way that I think is not, you know, I, I think we'll look back and realize like, oh, it is, you know, it, it is stressful and, and, and can mess you up in unforeseeable ways to like read a bunch of hate. Right. I, I think that's, yeah, I, I think we'll look back and realize that that was a bigger factor for, for a lot of people. Like Glenn Greenwald is another person like, Glenn Greenwald views himself in this us versus them battle all the time on so many issues. And I mean, he's somebody who's very online. Like I, I, I've interacted with him, you know, years ago before he ended up blocking me, but he, you know, I was like, I think you just spend way too much time online. And he's like, yeah, I definitely do. Like, I don't know why I spend, you know, hours online interacting with people. And I think that is just fundamentally not a good, good thing to do mentally, you know? Uh, so yeah, that's, that's what I think of that. Yeah, a lot of individuals might happen to be audience captured in some way that when you're challenging ideas from one particular camp, then all of a sudden you get a bunch of followers and you get pushed towards these more extreme positions or you allow yourself to be pushed toward these more extreme positions. Well, it's an interesting transformation to see that happen. Yeah, I think there's there's major incentives there too, right? It's like the incentives are distorting too. I mean, I think of somebody, Julius Goat, who that's his Twitter handle, a very polarizing liberal person who I've, you know, I wrote a whole piece criticizing his very uh, polarized and unreasonable views and insults and conservatives and such. But I think for, for many of these people, there's a, a major incentive there because you can easily build an audience by being polarizing and, and insulting the other side. Like, you will get huge amounts of attention. Uh, like I, if I if I was taking those approaches, I would probably have you know a couple hundred thousand followers or something. Like it, you know, it's it it, it it can behoove you to insult the other side. And then once you start doing that, uh, it's not like it's a conscious thing, but you you can be like it just creates this environment where you're seeing more. You know, you see more of the more extreme stuff. Uh, people encourage you for those views. You think you're right. Uh, you 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 view yourself as being a, a noble leader, leading the troops in the battle, kind of thing. You know, so it, it just creates these psychological dynamics that just all, all these things are kind of like feedback mechanisms in, in, in a way. And yeah, so I, I think there's just a lot of factors that kind of lead people down these polarized paths. Yeah, and some will defect from right-leaning positions and go towards the left as well as one person who goes by the handle of the amazing atheist he tweeted here atheists don't secretly believe in god but all homophobes want to suck man 
I'll say dong, and all transphobes want to suck girl dong. This can be supported by looking at search term data by region. Red states love big dongs. Facts don't care about your right-wing feelings. So it's just like they, they really seriously believe these things. It's so over the top. It's difficult to tell whether it's trolling or whether they seriously believe it. But I, I think he's a genuine believer in these things. He's not just saying these things to be provocative. I, and I think that's an important point, you know, because I think a lot of times, you know, we, we, we do assume that the people they're, they're being disingenuous. They're, they're lying. They're, they're being manipulative. They're being over the top purposefully. But yeah, I think a lot of people do genuinely believe these things. I mean, like the guy I was talking about, Julius Goat, whose real name is A.R. Mox. And he says some things where I'm just like, I find it, you're, you know, he's an intelligent person. He's a, he's a writer. He's an author. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of amazing to me that he can believe some of the things he says, but I do genuinely believe as with many people, I can, I can name, yeah, many of these people do gen, genuinely believe these things. And I think, you know, even when it comes to Trump, you know, a lot of people are like, he fully knows the things he says are lies. And I'm, and I think even, you know, even for him, I would say, and I'm someone who very much dislikes Trump, it's not always as clear as we think it is, because I think our us versus them animosity makes us, you know, getting back to the, like, we view things through the worst possible lens. It's like, it can be really hard to say what people believe and what they don't believe when we're in a very highly polarized situation, right? Because the polarized situation creates the very things that we find hard to believe, right? It's like, uh, so I, I think it can be really hard to say, like, they're lying, they, they know what they're doing, you know, that which is what people on both sides do, right? Which I think gets at the importance of, like, basically treating the things other people say as if they are real things they believe and not disrespecting them additionally by saying, you know, they don't believe these things because I, I just don't think there's anything to be gained by, you know, it's like there's nothing to be gained by just calling them liars because the only people you're convincing are people that already mostly agree with you, right? So, but there is benefit to be gained by actually engaging with their ideas and trying to overcome them if you are a politically passionate person because then at least you're trying to reach people who are more towards the middle who don't agree with you and such. There, there's nothing to be lost by taking their, their points of view, their, the points of view they express, taking those points of view seriously. Yeah, and you've mentioned you've been attacked by many people for this kind of work and wanting to de-radicalize people, wanting to argue for more moderation and reason. As some people on the right might say, oh, who are you to talk about depolarization? The left is so terrible. And people on the left will probably say the same thing about the right as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the nature of this work, it's standard. You know, if you if you look into like depolarized or bridge bridge builders, people who attempt to heal divides in any very highly polarized uh, situation, you know, throughout history or even now throughout the world, it's like it's just standard for those people to get a lot of hate. You know, they're they're considered you know, they're, they're either like working for the bad guys, you know, that's what people on both sides will perceive, <laughs> or they're like traitors to the cause, or they're oblivious, you know, to the, the real threats, um, you know, all, all these kinds of views. I've been told I was a liar and arguing in bad faith and that I was really a, uh, you know, uh, a, a secret fascist, or I was a member of the, <laughs> the evil elite, you know, from, from conservative people or whatever, what, what have you, you get the idea. But uh, I think I think that's you know, and and that's part of the challenge too is like doing this work is 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 uh, inherently kind of you know pretty stressful and inherently will alienate even people that you care about. I mean, I've I've lost and strained friendships from these things, and uh, you know, but I think it's important work, and I think the more people that do it, the more it opens up other people to do it because they say, hey, it's it's not so bad. Like it's you know, it's good to speak up against extreme stuff, uh, including on our side, and, 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 and doing that actually helps our side and helps defeat the extreme people that we see on the other side, right? It's like all connected. So I think uh, the more people do those things, I think it just creates more pathways for other people to do it and creating a uh, kind of a structure and a, and a, and a framework for, for why this stuff is important helps more people travel in those footsteps. You know, obviously, I'm not the only person, but that's how I think about me being one of the many people doing that work and why it's important. Some won't want to challenge particular extreme perspectives in fear of the social ramifications. You said losing friends. I've heard that from many other people. But one white pilling thing is that you make other connections and find more people mm -hmm. and maybe 
those people who couldn't tolerate disagreement or would otherwise paint you in a terrible light, well, maybe they weren't really genuine friends to begin with if they couldn't just tolerate that disagreement or say like, hey, you know, I really respect you on all these other issues, so can you talk about it more mm -hmm. rather than jumping to conclusions and then dumping you or casting you aside in some way. It does open you up to to making new connections. I, th I think the biggest thing, you know, if I, if I think about the people I know, like friends and family, you know, because I'm in the liberal world, I, I think the, ma the main thing that people think, like people that know me and my friends, like they won't be rude to me, but most of them are, are probably thinking like, ah, oh, Zach's kind of oblivious, like he, he's into this stuff, you know, trying to reduce reduce divides but we all know like what the real threat is and it's kind of like you know zach's off on a, a wild use chase i mean that that's what people you know that that's what people who i don't think know the work very well think from from you know and i think that, i think that's what a lot of people think who haven't really spent much time with the the train of thought in the depolarization space that you know people on both sides will just be like hey that's that's nice and all but you're just you're just oblivious right like we we know who the bad guys are and people like daryl davis i believe you've mentioned in your book have de-radicalized some really radical people yeah daryl davis is yeah he's a very interesting dude and has a lot of great quotes you know and an interesting thing about him is he's gotten a lot of hate from the left you know like he had some story about going to some some conference where like protesters were, were yelling at him that he was like white supremacist or something. Uh, but you know, wow. he's, he's, for listeners, he's a, he's a, he's a black man who is like known for uh, talking to uh, white supremacists and such and like getting them out of their, their worldviews. And he's just a great example of like, you know, we, we so many times we give up on persuading people or having, conversations and, and making them, you know, see our points of view and making them or at least making them less extreme or whatever. But he's a perfect example of like what, you know, look, look at what you can do if you take these approaches. And like, clearly, we can't all do that. But our divides are not as extreme as like, you know, a black man talking to a white supremacist, right? Like, but we so many people act as if our divides are at that level when you know, that's just a catastrophizing view of what our divides are, are, are like. Yeah, so there's some hope for change. And even on a lot of social attitude scales, you would see over time that certain minority groups received a lot of hatred and threats. And you would see surveys like, oh, would you accept a family member marrying a person of a certain group or religion, whatever happens to be? And over time, a lot of those attitudes change. So there there is some change, I think, in a positive direction. It's uh, one thing. Well, Michael Shermer, Steven Pinker, some people talk about this uh, moral arc of progress. Yeah, I think it gets back to the, you know, not not assuming uh, we know what the future looks like and and being humble in our in, in our views of what are to come. You know, it's like I think I think for a lot of people on both sides, the, the most polarized people, they they're very impatient. Right. They, they have a view of like the future needs to be, you know, X, Y, Z way or, you know, everything's everything's horrible but d there's nothing inherently fair about democracy you know like the democracy is you know just a a, a tool for you know avoiding uh, bloodshed right it's like it doesn't it doesn't mean like you're going to get your way and and who does really get their way when it comes to these you know huge societal things it's like in uh, at some point in time everybody's going to be upset and think things are are horrible but that's kind of the nature of the messy realm of you know democracy or just or just a uh, society like any kind of human order right it's but I, I think so many people become impatient and, and intolerant of not getting in their way and, and that's also what polarization does to us is makes us intolerant of not getting our way any other practical tips that you might have for people to reduce anger become more mindful about angry feelings you know so say reading my book for example uh, I, I think it actually has a Aside from any political activism kind of ideas, it actually has a uh, psychological well-being enhancing aspect because understanding the people around us, including the people you very much disagree with, and seeing the more generous interpretations of their behavior is like a calming, uh, beneficial thing to do. You know, it's like a therapeutic thing to do so you're not walking around with all of this hate and 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 uh, distorted perspectives of, of what people think and you know for example my, my wife is somebody who you know she's gone along with me on the this depolarization kind of journey you know and since since trump was elected and 
she's somebody who started out, you know, very, very angry as I did. I talk in, the, in my book about kind of my journey too. And, and, uh, you know, she, she read my work and, and listened to my podcast along the way. And, you know, one thing she'll, she'll say is like, I'm still very, you know, ang- I still get angry and I'm still very much disagree about whatever things on the conservative side, but uh, she's much happier, right? which I think is, uh, a, you know, a natural outcome to understanding other people better. Uh, you ju- you just have less, you know, kind of like in the anatomy of peace, which is a well-known conflict resolution book. You know, you're, you're, you may still very much disagree and work towards what you want to work towards, but your heart is not at, at war with other people. Your heart is at peace with them, even if you, even as you may very much work towards what you want to work towards. And I think it's like your, your heart is more at peace with the world and with your, your fellow, you know, fellow humanity, fellow people around you. Um, yeah. And I think that's, that's just psychologically a better place to be. All right. Very good. So we'll wrap up here before promoting your profiles, your links, your books again. Is there anything else you'd like to add to the conversation? No, I think that's, that's, that's great. Thanks a lot. All right. Very good. So can you mention where listeners can find you and find your book? You can find my book, Diffusing American Anger, at American-Anger.com. And me, Zachary Elwood, you can find on Twitter at a poker player. Yeah, you can check out my, my podcast, People Who Read People. And I have a compilation of like the politics-related episodes, because um, not all of it's, you know, some of it's just about psychology and behavior. Uh, yeah, so that's pretty much it. And uh, yeah, I want to say thanks again for having me on this. Uh, it's great. Absolutely. And Amazon, Kindle, other places your book can be found? Yeah, it's on Kindle. Uh, and I have like ebooks on my site. I'm still working on editing a bit more before I put it in paperback, which I want to do, you know, in the next few months, but and try to shorten it a bit. But um, yeah, it's on, it's on ebook and in the Kindle library. All right. Very good. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for more content. See the show notes for more information and links surrounding topics discussed in this episode. Support my efforts through my Patreon page found at StoicSolutionsPodcast.com. Access special perks, including having upcoming podcast guests answer your questions, custom-made podcast episodes, and private one-on-one calls to discuss whatever you'd like. Visit my other podcast at HurdyGurdyTravel.com, that's H-U-R-D-Y-G-U-R-D-Y, Travel.com, to learn how to make money, save money, and travel the world at low cost with credit card rewards, deals, and loyalty programs. Meet me in person during monthly meetings in Willow Grove, Pennsylvania, with my group Greater Philadelphia Travel, Credit Miles and Points, found at meetup.com slash Philly Miles and Points. Find me in the 2022 book Stoicism Today, Selected Writings, Volume 4. Order a paperback or Kindle version of the book from Amazon.com. Find a link in the show notes. Thanks to generous patrons and fans of this podcast who help support my work. Have a great day. Thank you.